Welcome to Better Ways for Living, brought to you by HLS Healthcare. I'm Nick, and we're really excited to bring this series to you. We've collected a range of guests that we get to speak with current affairs about healthcare, disability, SDA, all of the things that are really interesting to us at the moment. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Let's meet today's guest, Lou Pascuzzi, CEO at TLC Healthcare. A major part of the industry being managed by one level of government and two other major parts being managed by another. It's never going to work. It's never going to work. Now the CEO of TLC Healthcare is speaking out, saying taking away freedoms isn't the answer. I purchased a, um, a box at Marvel Stadium, a 16-seater box at Marvel Stadium, uh, and our residential aged care residents, it's exclusive for them. A unique facility in Mordialic is combining childcare and aged care. Now, first up, let's bring Lou Pascuzzi from TLC Aged Care in. How frustrated are you by the actions of Canberra and the state government? G'day Lou, how are you? Really good Nick, really good, just back from a bit of a break, feeling very refreshed. Well earned. Yeah, oh, after the pandemic and four years worth of absolute micro-engagement, I really needed it. It's my first break for the last five years, so it, it was great. It was great to reconnect with the kids and, and my wife as well. It was excellent. Yeah, nice. So I, d- I did want to start off by maybe just a bit of an introduction about who, who is Lou Pascuzzi and how did you end up here at TLC? I grew up in the northern suburbs where all good Italian families migrated to. My father was an accountant by trade and he always ran his own business, as did my grandfather as well. Fresh out of my commerce degree and then post-grad in business statistics and analytics. I worked for Australia Post in some graduate placements in market and business analytics. I met a really charming fellow while I was there and we started our own corporate health business. And that was really the start of my entry into health. And we grew that business over 13 years to become the largest in Australia and New Zealand. One of our biggest clients was Bupa. We came to a renegotiation of our contract with Bupa and they walked into our boardroom and said, we're not re-signing, we want to buy you out. So again, Dad is the mentor. I said, look, what do you think? He said, Lou, never get attached to an asset. You've got your degrees and graduate diplomas. He said, take take the winnings and move on. I always thought that I wouldn't be employable after that because ultimately... You don't really get corporates employing you know, entrepreneurs that have, that have run their own businesses to a certain level of fruition because they're difficult to control. I was keen to get back into corporate. And anyway, word got around that I'd sold the business. And the CEO at the time of HealthScope, Robert Cook, gave me a call. I had to cut my overseas trip short because he asked me to come out over and manage his, the medical centre business for HealthScope. I very quickly moved back into corporate as a national manager for medical centres, running 72 medical centres and looking after the best part of five, 600 GPs. Ran that right through to when TPG and Carlisle, the private equity firm that owned HealthScope at the time, floated the business, exited on float and went over to, to Sonic Healthcare under the auspices of Colin Goldschmidt and Malcolm Parmenter, two names, big names in the healthcare industry, and helped Malcolm Parmenter run their medical center business. Within about a year of that, I received a phone call from C-Centric Executive Recruiters, and he said, look, Lou, I know you're primary care through and through, medical centers through and through, but he said there's a particular company that's, that it, that's interested in your CV. 
but it's in aged care. And I said, look, I know nothing about aged care. And also I'd heard nothing but negative you know, reports coming out of aged care. And I always swore it'd be an industry that I'd, I'd never touch. I did a little bit of investigation and, and found a lot of low hanging fruit. So I decided, oh, well, look, I'll go and entertain this business. And it happened to be TLC. After some discussion around my coming on and as CEO and some of the ideas I had for the industry and the fact that the board at the time were supportive of those ideas, actually liked what they heard. It was refreshing because they'd always had CEOs from the industry. The business sort of plateaued and, and became a little stale. They were quite happy to hear some innovative initiatives coming from someone. And that was the end of that. From that point on in 2013, I took over the realm here. It's a very different business to what it was back then. We've changed the operational model significantly, which is really why we're in a better position today, a decade later than what a lot of the other aged care providers are in. And it's been a lot of fun because the ultimate beneficiaries of a lot of the initiatives that we've introduced has been our residents and the other clientele that we've developed over that time being our patients of our medical centres, our students of our registered training organisation. These are all new initiatives that we are concentrically diversified into. Now our children in our first early learning centre that we've opened, our gym members in the first commercial health club that we've opened as well. So it's been a very exciting decade with a significant level of achievements and I've committed to the next decade only because the board is not retarding any of the new initiatives that we've planned for, for the next decade as well. So it's, it's an exciting place to work and, and I'm enjoying myself and just recently been made a director as well. So I'm very much enjoying myself. One of the things I guess I want to unpack there is that what you've been able to achieve with TLC, being in aged care, what translated for you from what you learned in terms of building and running your own business to then working back in corporate to then coming into TLC in corporate and now being a director? Was there a lot that translated between those industries? Look, running your own business gives you an appreciation for, for every one of the corporate functions because basically you're involved in all of them, especially in the company's inception. The fact that I had that broader knowledge, so I was a jack of all trades, master of none in a functional corporate sense, I think I earned a lot of respect from the other executives that looked after the other functions at HealthScope because I had an appreciation of what they did, but also had how they would impact my business, i.e. HealthScope, the medical centre business, how they would support that and, and here as well. Here, we're still very much a family business. You know, the, the in industry when I moved into uh, aged care was very much a cottage industry. So we pretty much corporatised it over the last decade. That was one of my initiatives to, 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 to corporatise it, uh, to bring in a full range of C-suites and, and so on, which we didn't have before. The fact that I had appreciation for, for the functions that literally run a business mm. I think I was able to utilise those functions in a better way to benefit whatever I was looking after, whether it was the medical centre business or at HealthScope, Sonic or here. And not only that, whenever I was in dialogue with those functions, it would be an informed dialogue because you know, they'd look at me and think, oh, okay, well, at least he knows what he's talking about. You know, he's not just an accountant. So I think that was the biggest benefit, that experience that I gained in all of the functions, in, in setting up all of the functions when I ran my own business. Yeah, and, and being able to bring those into, because I think it's fair to say, I, I, one of the sayings I've said, and maybe it's unfair, maybe it's fair, but aged care by name, aged care by nature, and sometimes it's been very slow to adapt. Absolutely. And, and so that skill set and that experience in a fast-paced environment, you've, you've brought that into 
TLC mm, and you've implemented those principles and made a huge success out of that. Absolutely. And, and, and look, looking at the company now, you know, a lot of that gets forgotten. But you know, for people, and people have got very short memories, yeah. but it was very embryonic in that realm 10 years ago. And we've, you know, we've developed it to a point now in the last decade, pretty much resembles a large corporate business. And the governance element as well has, has been enhanced as well. So um, I think that would have to be heralded as one of the, one of the success factors of the last decade. And, and also in our being to, able to navigate in a collaborative form with the expertise that we've brought on and now that we have that's static to the organisation, in our, our ability to navigate so well the, the challenges of mm. the last decade, mm. of which, as you know, there have been many. Would you describe yourself as divergent, do you think? We are, we are pretty much disruptors in the industry, as far as I'm concerned. And I've been very critical of the industry, where, and not, not to be mean, but, no. but I'm just calling it as it is. And surely, you know, you know, I believe anyway, the industry understands this. The fact that the majority of the industry, 80, 90% of it, is still running operations the same way it's been running for 40, 50 years. The model doesn't work, nor does it meet new expectations of an evolving market requiring the services of, you know, aged care and in particular residential aged care or home care or whatever the case may be. And to not change, I think, is a little arrogant. And for your only strategy to be putting your hand down and lobbying government for more money for a system or an operational model that is that is fundamentally flawed, really. If we weren't 80% funded by the government, if you were a business in another industry that was totally reliant on customers and customer attrition and so on and so you'd fail. You would fail. If you didn't change and evolve with the industry, you would fail. And I think now the even governments are starting to realise you know, how much more money can we give this industry? How much more can we afford? And now they're looking for you know, for other sources. So, so again, in, in user pays and, you know, changing the means testing rules and they're entertaining, you know, levies from superannuation funds or an income tax levy, perish the thought. But that's just adding, adding more or, or supporting an industry that just doesn't want to change. It's, it supports that ideology. And as far as I'm concerned, the industry will never have enough money if it keeps running the way it is. That's where in the first year, and even at my interview 10 years ago, I said, we can't keep running this business the way it's running because we could see the headwinds, or not all of them, but a lot of them. I mean, who would have known a pandemic would have hit us? But we could see a lot of the headwinds and we could see that the model is, was just unsustainable. So we thought that, you know, again, we must diversify. We must look for new revenue opportunities. Not diversify for the sake of diversification. We wanted to diversify concentrically so that whatever we were diversifying into was going to benefit the core product being residential aged care. Complementary. Uh, com it was going to be complementary yeah. to that product. And that's why you know, medical centres and bringing doctors onto rack sites and doctors did not want to visit residential aged care homes. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't funded to do so. There was an opportunity cost for them leaving their domiciled medical centre to attend an aged care home. And that was a big problem because aged care residents need primary care. So I thought, okay, we're well, bringing the doctors to them by opening community medical centres, co-located community medical centres at every one of our sites was a big winner. And uh, the biggest winner was the resident who was getting primary care on tap. And that evolved then to include allied health. And then we thought, 
you know, we're talking about workforce shortages now. We've, the industry's had workforce shortages for the last 10, 15 years. So we thought, okay, well, we, we're going to need to train our own. And that's where the concept of introducing our own registered training organisation was born. So again, to benefit the aged care. And we've started training our own people in Cert 3s and Cert 4s, and, and that's helped bolster our workforce shortage issues as well. And then just recently, with intergenerational care and our will to deinstitutionalise aged care, that's when the early learning centres, the childcare centres and the health clubs have come in. Mm. Um, they have provided great revenue streams into TLC, provide a sustainable pl- platform that we can grow on into the future, but also benefit the, the original customer, which is the resident. So it's this diversification that has set you apart, do you think? So we hear all these reports about 75% of the industry is running at a loss. Yep. I read this morning as well that we've, you know, Victoria's had 300 beds stripped out of, out of circulation in the last 18 months. Mm. Now, if that doesn't tell you that there's something wrong with the industry, if a scale provider can't operate a status quo operational model that's been running for 40 years, that should be enough to tell you that it's, the industry doesn't need more money. The industry operational model needs to change. To go back to your question, that's why TLC hasn't had the issues the other providers have had over the last decade. It's because of our gradual diversification. But the other thing we looked at is, for example, especially over the last five years with regard to the pandemic, mid-tier consumable suppliers have been profiteering in this industry for a box of gloves that without gloves, without nitrile or vinyl gloves, the industry stops, the entire industry stops. Aged care, acute care, primary care stops. Pre-pandemic, we were buying those gloves for $5 a box. We are now buying those gloves for 12 to $13 a box. With the excuse of shortage of supply, basically increased costs from overseas, inflation, a myriad of excuses, and everyone's just accepting that, whereas I couldn't accept it. I just couldn't accept it. Two years ago, we bought a warehouse and we decided to embark on a direct supply journey to Vietnam and a couple of other areas. And we have been direct supplying from new manufacturers. So we stayed away from China because the majority of what's provided here at the moment comes from China. So we've been self-supplying and direct supplying from the manufacturers direct, so no middlemen. Gloves, incontinence pads, masks, you know, wet wipes, uh, disinfectants and so on and so forth. So things we would use every day in volume within the aged care home. And all of a sudden, TLC Health Supplies was born. So now we are selling to the best part of 20 other aged care providers. They're consumables. So it's another revenue stream for us in a concentrically diversified industry. But the saving for us over the last 12 months in our normal consumables expenditure, now know that in the last 12 months, we've grown by some five, four or 500 beds, has been $900,000 worth of saving on those items. And we haven't even compromised quality. The quality is better than what we were using before in the products that we've selected. So that's resulted in a significant reduction in our expenditure. The other was, you know, and Daniel Andrews has said it, the workers' compensation industry is broken. Five, five, six years ago, when we were paying a workers' compensation premium, was up at $2 million then. Mid-tier provider, our size now, would be closer to $4 million in workers' compensation premium. Well, we could see that even $2 million six years ago was ludicrous because we had all of 15, 16 claims. We didn't have a lot of claims at all. They were all minor ones. 
So why are we paying for the mismanagement and, in, and safety in, in environments of other aged care homes? Because that's what was affecting the premium. So we thought, well, look, let's look at self-insurance. Only 40-odd companies in Australia have it because it's onerous to actually achieve self-insurance. But we thought, let's look at self-insurance and let's look at the opportunity that going through the process will give us in terms of improving safety in our own homes, not only for employees, but then ultimately, if you're improving safety in, in your own homes for the employees, you're improving it for the residents as well and visitors and so on and so forth. Three-year process working with WorkSafe to achieve self-insurance. And we finally achieved it. Our $2 million premium uh, reduced to zero. We hired some very astute claims managers within the company. You know, from $2 million, we might have about $400,000 worth of claims managers in the company. That $400,000 has been pretty much static over the last five years. That's been our cost of workers' compensation, whereas others now are at 4 and $5 million when, you look, when you're looking at a company our size. And I'd hate to think what the Boopers, Estias, um, Japaras and Regises of the world would have to pay for workers' mm. compensation. So we looked at little, so that, there's consumables, there's an example, workers' compensation. We, there was about 10 or 15 different things in our, in our operational cost lines that we found a better way of doing. And, uh, and that has resulted in a significant improvement on our sustainability. That coupled with the additional revenue streams is, you know, I make no, there's no secret about it. That's why we're in the position that we are today. Nothing of what you've said is, is rocket science. No. What you've achieved, there's, no. there's difficulty in delivering it. Yeah. I get that. But so there's obviously a line of people from the industry at your door knocking on the door to say to you, hey, can you give us some ideas about how you've done what you've done? Or, yeah. Yeah. Are, they, or are they saying, no, 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 we're not interested. We're just going to keep pounding our head against the wall. Now there are. Yeah, okay. Now that they can see, and it's been widely publicised, that we're doing things differently. It's taken them 10 years for the penny to drop. They're, they are asking the question. But now's the wrong time. We're in an industry that is now really struggling for, for cash. We've got inflation at heightened levels. We've got interest rates at heightened levels. We've gone through a period of pandemic where bonds in our industry, which the industry uses to build residential aged care homes and to and improve and refurb residential aged care homes, went through a significant slump. With departing residents, a lot of aged care providers were using bank debt to pay back their, the balance of their bonds. So a lot of aged care providers now have a bank, a core debt that they can't pay back. Bonds still haven't returned to the levels they were five years ago before the pandemic. When they talk to us and they, we clarify and describe and articulate what it took to concentrically diversify the capital requirements, the fact that we had to reappropriate some of our homes to make room for these facilities to be co-located, the effort that went into that and the numerous VCAT hearings with, against council and objectors and so on and so forth and the time that comes with that and the cost that comes with that. Ten years ago, every aged care provider would have had the money to do that. The problem now is, the big barrier to entry now is, is the, the fiscal issue. And unfortunately, as much as they want to do it, and a lot of executives in the industry want to do something different, boards won't allow it, and nor will their, their purse, because we're in a different environment. So unfortunately, it's just too late to the game. But I've always been open with regard to what we've done. I've promoted it. I've, I've always been happy to talk to anyone that's ever approached us with regard to how 
to even do what we've done. But too little, too late at this point, I think, for a lot of providers. Yeah, and I know you and I in other conversations, you've, you've said things to me, you're not afraid of competition. You, no. you have an open door policy in that in that regard. And mm. it, it's a little bit different. We used the word divergent before, but, but it's working. Mm. And the ultimate beneficiary are the residents. Yes, that's exactly right. A good indication of that is the acuity of our residents is very, very high. So if you look at it in terms of the funding model, when it was ACFI, the aged care funding instrument, 80% of our residents were triple H's. Now with ANAC, um, 80% of our residents average a nine or a 10 class ANAC. And it's one thing to have the acuity profile at that level, but if you're not providing the clinical care at that level, you won't get the claim, you won't get the funding. Mm. The fact that we have primary care on site, we employ allied health, we don't subcontract it, we own our physios, podiatrists, dietitians. The fact that we have basically, the medical centers aren't just medical centers, they're rehab centers with hydrotherapy pools and you know properly equipped gymnasiums and so on and so forth, means that clinical care is able to match the acuity. So the claims, are much higher. Had we have not had all of that, the acuity would still be there, but we'd only be able to service at a you know at a median level, at a much lower level. That's the resident losing, and that's the majority of aged care homes, because the acuity's there, but they don't have the means to provide the service. And if they can employ the means or, or engage the means, it's at an additional charge to the resident. So we don't charge the resident anything in addition for any of those aspects of that heightened level of care. Whereas, you know, it's fair enough if you, if, you, if you basically were able to engage it externally through contractors or whatever the case may be and charge for it. But unfortunately, the market is the market where the majority of residents out there feel that they're entitled to residential aged care, so they won't pay any additional cost, which means they go without the service. And that for me, is just un- unimaginable. I wouldn't lead a business where as a result of that additional charge that has to be paid because I can't afford to give it away for nothing, I couldn't sleep at night knowing that resident's missing out because they couldn't afford to pay for it. So I sleep a lot better at night knowing that we're providing it to them for nothing. And ultimately they're getting that relative benefit you know, as par for the course. So the resident has won as a result of our concentric diversification. They, they, are the, they are the main winner. But also, and this is what people fail to see, our, hosp- our hospitalizations, Nick, have halved since we've had primary care in place, which means our ambulatory call-out, our ambulance call-outs have yeah. halved as well. Now that's a company with 1,600 residents. Imagine what employing a model like ours across 300,000 residents in the industry would do to hospital waiting lists, elective surgery waiting lists, the ambulance crisis that we're experiencing at the moment with 10 and 15 and 20 minute, you know, response times and so on, what it could do for that because, you know, patients aren't being wheeled to hospital in, in ambulance transport vehicles from aged care homes. The fact that we're able to provide such a high level of care at the home that's accessible means that we've taken pressure off the healthcare industry. That's nothing when it's 1,600 residents, but that could be really something when it's across 300,000 residents. And one aged care resident in an aged care bed might cost the government $300 a day. 
one aged care resident, depending on their acuity level, in WEIS funding, for example, acute care funding, might cost the government anywhere from $5,000 to, to, to $9,000 a day, depending a day. on their acuity. How terribly managed is healthcare in Australia? I mean, don't get me wrong, we've got a good healthcare offering in Australia, but we don't have a great one. Mm-hmm. And it's purely and simply because of this disjointed mismanagement between the three main healthcare sectors, primary care, aged care and acute care. I think you said it earlier that you speak frankly and you call a spade a spade, but it's not to be cruel, it's not no. to be diminutive. It's it's about saying, well, if we, if we get this out, we can talk about it, we can actually affect change and move forward. Yeah, exactly. Look, I've got 10 years left in me. If there's any legacy that I'd like to leave is that when I leave, if I need residential aged care, it's at the level that... I'd be comfortable with. Mm. And at the moment, if I had to pick a home, it'd be a TLC home only because of the level that it's at. And still, you know, I haven't finished. You know, in 10 years, we've got a lot more work to do in terms of perfecting that deinstitutionalized integrated healthcare offering. And that's the only thing that excites me. I've got 10 years left and, and that's what I'm going to do. What's what's next in that space without giving away any of your trade secrets? Oh, but, no. you know, I mean, are we, are we talking day surgery stuff? Yeah. Are we talking... Look, I, 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 again, I've, I've always... I mean, I remember when Fairfax, across their newspapers in my first year, I told them what I was going to do yeah. and they printed it. I said, we are going to co-locate primary care medical centres, community primary care medical centres, across our entire residential aged care network. They printed it for all to see. I had nothing to hide. Mm. No one jumped on. And ultimately, over the last 10 years, I've always been upfront in terms of what we're about to do, what we're going to do. And you know what, if anyone else did it before, it's great, fantastic, because again, it's improving the quality of care in Australia. Think about Australians and their quality of care. Don't worry about who gets there first and you know, who, who takes the accolade. I couldn't care less. So for me, the next 10 years, this is now our minimum platform, what we've just built and opened at Mordialic, which is uh, a large aged care precinct with minimum 150 beds, uh, large commercial gymnasium with capacity to service up to 1,000 community members, large primary care medical centre. When I say large, I mean four or five doctor large to service you know, up to 11,000 patients in the community and have the capacity to do so. And a large early learning centre, a minimum 120 ch- child capacity, as well as that, you know, a commercial cafe for all to use that's licensed and so on and so forth. So that is our minimum platform going forward. We won't build a greenfield development going forward that has any less of a service mix than that. Uh, we're actually now even looking at our current homes to integrate where we have where we're not landlocked and where we have space the early learning center for example the gym and so on and so forth and there's a couple of brownfield projects that we'll engage over the next 10 years to do that and these are platforms that will outlive us all mm-hmm. will provide this service in perpetuity but this is the platform that makes it sustainable into the future minimizing or eliminating any potential of anyone putting their hand in their pocket Hallam, we've bought seven acres of land next door to our current residential aged care home and medical centre there, which operates at 100% occupancy. It's a 180-bed home, and it has three or four doctors that, uh, that service the community and the residents there. We've bought seven acres of land next door to that, right on the highway. Apart from expanding our residential aged care home and medical centre offering, we'll apply the early learning centre or the childcare centre in 
a much bigger format. Gymnasium in a much bigger format and pools in a much bigger format. I mean, we're now at 25 metre pools, but that will be the site for our first day surgery. And it's not, it's not anything that people don't know. If you actually drive past it, our storyboards at the front basically say that a day surgery is coming here soon. Coming. That will complete our integrated sphere. That will complete our integrated sphere. That we can walk away or I can walk away saying, well, I've actually integrated all that anyone needs from a healthcare perspective and a, and a lifestyle perspective on the one site where all services are interrelated. And we are already receiving phone calls from specialists in local hospitals up that way saying, when are you opening? And can we be involved in the design so that we can take up residence with you in a customised format? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. You know, again, we're keeping everybody on ice until we're ready to move into developing those two projects. And they are you know, the commencement of our approach to council in both those large greenfield pro projects is 12 to 18 months away. And so they'll be built in the next five years. Yeah, exciting. One of the products that you've been installing into every one of your greenfield sites over the last five years now is a product that we've done some business on with LC Smartfloor. Again, just for the listeners, it's about LC is a, is a capacitance-based system that's designed to be able to deliver real-time information about what's happening with residents mm -hmm. in the room without invading privacy. We can tell if they fall over, mm -hmm. if they enter the bathroom, if they leave their room, if they enter somebody else's room, these sorts of things. So why, why LC... You've to date been probably the only provider that's really exploited this technology. And this technology will continue to evolve, but you're absolutely committed to it, as you've communicated to me. It's part of a broader strategy, again, that commenced 10 years ago, where we totally ITized or computerized our, our operational systems. We also took central control of our IT as well. So where we had, when I started, we had a server at every home backing up those servers by people taking tapes home. We centralised all of our servers to a secure location with a mirrored server, mirrored infrastructure. So we laid dark fibre cable from Port Melbourne to our head office here, and the mirrored server is here updating every 20 seconds as well. So if ever anything happened, we've got a, we've got a strategy. We basically have routers at all of our aged care homes that basically link into that server. So all of our IT is managed centrally here at head office. To that end, all of our doors at all of our sites are all IT managed through access control, centralised here at head office. We had you know, 11 different PABX systems when I started here 10 years ago at all of our homes. Mm. We have centralised that to one voice over IP system that again is run by our service. A lot of our clinical records and, uh, and employee records were all paper-based. So all of that was scanned, backed up, stored, and uh, we computerized all of that as well. CCTV was only in certain locations, gave us probably 20% coverage of our sites. I'd say our CCTV now gives us 110% coverage. And what I mean by 110%, is not only are there no black spots within all of our aged care homes, but in the car parks and indeed the streets, the streets in which our, our properties are located as well. So the streets is the extra 10%. 
And CCTV has saved us on a number of occasions with regard to you know, sibling rivalries and malpractice when it comes to you know, estate issues and, and failings through different members of family or different family members of the residents. It really has saved us. But there was always that gap, Nick. There was always that gap in the bedrooms. You can't have CCTV in the bedrooms or, or anything like that. So we thought, well, we're, how are we going to have transparency? Number one in the bedrooms for who enters the room, you know, the residents in the room, yes, but we've got with Elsie Smart Flooring, we've got the opportunity to identify, well, who else has entered the room and when. If a resident falls in the room, the Elsie Smart Flooring is connected to our nurse call system. So you would have seen, you know, residents that have fallen in a room. And because the way it works in residential aged care is that there's rounds that the nurses or PCWs will do similar to a hospital that might occur, you know, a good residential aged care home, maybe every hour or two, a short staff residential aged care home, maybe every four or five or six hour, whatever. You know, resident falls, unless you know about it pretty quickly, there's a good chance that that resident, depending on their acuity levels, could die. A fall in any one of our rooms alerts the nurse call system within seconds, so we can attend to that person right away. But also for, for, for its clinical means or its clinical abilities, I mean, if we see a resident who's not incontinent, that's getting up four or five times a night and walking into their ensuite, well, we can start to look at, well, is this a continence issue and should we start broaching the subject and looking at this, at looking at corrective action potentially for this poor person that's having to get up four or five times a night to go to the toilet. So the LC Smart Flooring that we've engaged gave us the transparency that we don't have from CCTV in probably what is the, one of the most critical non-public places in the home and, and it's legal. But what it does for the care of those particular residents is just as important as, as basically any of the other embellishments in clinical care that we've engaged, whether it be medical centres, doctors, or whatever the case may be. We see it as another allied health mechanism, really. And it saved us. It saved us on a number of occasions. We've had a number of residents fall late at night that have respiratory issues. And had we have left that resident and found them on our next round, that resident may have may have passed away. And if it saves one life, it's invaluable, right? So for, for us, it hasn't, it's, it's saved a lot of lives. Yeah, so it's worked very, very well for us. Another one where we had an instance where we, uh, we built a significant brownfield. We ran a significant brownfield development over at one of our sites and uh, you know, Elsie Smart Flooring was in, the rooms were all furbished. It was a, a new 60 bed wing. The rooms were all furnished, everything was ready to go, but we, haven't, we hadn't cut the ribbon on them and, and opened the rooms. At that point, so it was about a week away. And we had an intruder enter one of the back rooms. And as soon as they stepped foot through the window onto the Elsie Smart flooring, the nurse, nurse call went off. A lot of the nurses and staff on night shifts said, well, hang on, we haven't got anyone in that room. They checked CCTV very, very quickly and could see that there was someone that actually entered that room. So rather than enter that wing themselves, they immediately called the police and the, uh, the intrusion was thwarted. So. You know, on a number of levels, it's really, mm. really helped us, both clinically from a, an OHS point of view and from a security point of view, it's helped us significantly. So we've got this mandate now where any greenfield or brownfield development, we will include this 
smart flooring technology as part of the course. It's been, it's been a fantastic success and part of the frustration for us is we know these stories, you and I have spoken about them in the past, mm. and, but again, you know, the industry's adoption of the technology, whether it's this or others, as they evolve, there'll be other mm. tech that'll come along and as it grows. We spoke a little bit about funding and, and reliance on government funding. And I guess I want to be a little bit provocative here because I want to understand, because this is not a new problem for government, right? And we've had an ageing population issue for decades. Mm. We've known about it. You could be cynical and say that previous governments go, well, that's okay, it's not my problem because I'm not going to be here when it, when it happens. But it's on, now on our doorstep, it's happening. So where do these people go? We say, we spoke about the 300 beds that we lose. A lot of the providers now are starting to shift to the, the independent living model because it's more lucrative. And I have no, no bones myself with commercial enterprise and it makes sense to me. I think you can do a lot more with money than you can without it, as long as your intention is good. But what happens to this aging tsunami? Where are they gonna go? That's the fear at the moment. Uh, capacity out there is reducing when it should be increasing, especially in light of the significant spike in, in intergenerational change that's starting now, but you know, will really hit its strides in 27, 28. Um, the fear is that we're going to be at a point where hospitals are inundated because they can't go to independent living. They can't go to uh, retirement villages because ultimately, and especially if they need a heightened level of care, which they will, there's a lot more 80-year-olds coming to the market over the next three years than not, and that we've ever known in our history. So hospitals will end up being inundated. The cost of that will escalate exponentially unless we can look at aged care and rather than just keep throwing money at a problem that governments have thrown money at for as long as anyone, any of us can remember, which is a Band-Aid fix at best. Ultimately, every two or three years after money's thrown at an industry, the, the providers are back on their knees again, begging for more. There needs to be an overhaul of the, the way we manage aged care, a significant overhaul. Greg Hunt in 2019 asked me to go in and present a blueprint of what we do to the then Secretary of the Department of Health in Canberra, and all of the deputy secretaries, so the deputy secretary of aged care, primary care, and, and a number of other deputy secretaries that were there. Well, to my dismay, as I was about to, as I was setting up to present, the deputy secretaries, as they walked in, they introduced themselves to the other deputy secretaries. So they don't even know each other, let alone work together. And that for me was, uh, that for me was a significant revelation in that well, if there's, these people don't even know each other and they work in isolation of each other and in silos, how are we ever going to have a cohesive, collaborative healthcare system when at the managerial, at this top director level, they don't even know each other? So There is no cohesion collaboration. Is, no, no, there's just nothing there. Yeah. So, so and, and whilst healthcare is in this disjointed form, it's, it's akin to always being a political football. It'll always be something that politics, because you know it, it will or it won't, depending on a policy of a given day, help win or lose an election. Mm. And unfortunately, in that format, healthcare is mechanistic. It'll never be humanistic. And this is where they're really, it, it, there's one or two things that can happen. Either the feds take it, take it all over, or the states take it all over. 
that would go a long way in improving the continuum of care and the the machinations of, of how the industry runs and it will result in cost efficiencies for the industry as well or have an independent manage it similar to you know the fair work commission or whatever the case may be but manage it in its entirety one independent body managing it in its entirety which includes a you know a pricing commission for the lot and ultimately whatever that whatever that commission requires yearly governments just have to budget for mm. and and ultimately governments then lose that as an opportunity for it to for it to influence political issues or elections uh, only then i believe will it be absolutely humanistic will get the best cost efficiencies out of it all and provide a heightened level of care for for australians yeah, it's a shame it's got to come to that it, well it, 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 it is a shame but you know just this this whole just just the the very simplistic observation of a major part of the industry being managed by one level of government and two other major parts being managed by another mm. it's never going to work mm, mm. it's never going to work and we're always going to have cost issues and political embargoes and political standoffs and and so on it's mm. and ultimately that's that's that doesn't serve the 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 patient the resident you know the person that really needs those services to uh, to give them a quality of life yeah there's a, a lot of noise and talk at the moment about home care people staying in their own homes for longer yeah. and, and and that all it sounds good and I, i'm not saying it's not it's it would be nice to stay in your own home for longer yeah. but is that the answer where where do the workers come from if we can't provide efficient, high-level quality care in an efficient environment like a like a TLC facility. How do we do it when we've got to drive across the country? Yeah. Where does that go? Look, look, home care is a nice idea. It's a great idea. So is hospital in the home. That's a great idea too. But it's not practical. I mean, at the end of the day, our home care packages now, once you've, and, and I've got first-hand experience of this because my father-in-law's on, and my mother-in-law are on one of them. Once you've, you know, had someone come and cut your grass and do a bit of cleaning for you and uh, take your shopping once and uh, and maybe have a physio visit you you know once every two or three months you've exhausted your budget mm. there's only a certain level of, of acuity that that will service you get to a point where you need 24 7 care or, or even if it's 12 hour seven day a week care and all of a sudden it's just not practical What's bad about that is you actually have someone who's at the end of that point, who's at the end of that cycle where they're starting to determine, well, can I still stay at home or do I need to move on? They're actually suffering at that point in the home. And by the time they get to residential aged care, they're almost palliative. And uh, literally, we become an end of life solution for them. And in some cases, they don't even make it. They, uh, they, they, die, they die in the home with their latter years quite testing. So again, great in theory, but in absolute practice and for the money that's currently attributed to home care packages, it's just not practical. It, it just is not practical. And one could argue the quality of life that they experience, especially when they, when they qualify for the higher level of packages, they're almost or package, they're almost at a point where they really need 24-hour care anyway. You know, no one's taking them on, you know, you know, field trips and, and, mm. uh, and no one's running wellbeing activities with them and no one's, you know, really giving them 24-7, you know, primary care on tap and they miss appointments and, and who's medicating them at the end of the day. And a lot of them require external medication assistance and, 
you know, ultimately it, it gets to a point where that person is really struggling at home and uh, by the time they get to us, it's, it's, it's basically too late. And we're starting to see a shift in that now. And this is why we've upgraded our homes to appeal to that younger resident with the gyms, with the pools, with the plenty of glass and plenty of natural light, with the daily excursions. You know, we have, I've purchased a, a box at Marvel Stadium, a 16-seater box at Marvel Stadium, and our residential aged care residents, it's exclusive for them. Aged care residents attending that box, they're saying, I'm living better than my family who have never been to a box in their life. Yeah. I mean, we've had aged care residents that have joined us in a wheelchair and because we've got physio on tap and, and the gyms as equipped as they are, within six months they're walking again because they've never been to a gym in the last 40, 50 years or, or indeed potentially in their lives. So in terms of living better, we've created an environment where residents can come in earlier and actually live a better life than what they would live at home. But this, this stereotype out there, unfortunately, is fed by the 90% of homes that aren't that well equipped or that don't provide that level of service. But they're not all like that. They're not all like that. I'll be lining up TLC for my future yeah, too, by I, the sounds of things. <laughs> I'd like to take the top floor of Clifton Views or, yeah. or the top floor of uh, Mordialli, which is, has a great view over the golf course there, Woodlands Golf Course. And, you know, I'd rather I'd rather be there than living in a you know a small you know box in you know Fitzroy somewhere or Collingwood or Abbotsford where literally no one visits, no one sees me, no one asks me to go out. And mm. I just feel sad for for people like that who are stuck in that yeah. in that sort of bubble. They've earned the right to better. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, the, the people that we're looking after, Bill. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people that that you know ex mayors of of councils and people that have built this country you know and you know captains of industry that are living with us as well and uh, and some of what they've accomplished they don't deserve any less they yeah. don't deserve any less you know if we could do more we would and uh, and we strive to every day so Lou, love it love love the chat always love your energy and your enthusiasm Thanks. and it's something reason why i really wanted to have this conversation with you i think i, I align with a lot of what you say I, I think the industry needs to change i've been in the industry my whole life albeit in a slightly different area and and it it needs to be better. It deserves to be better. And I want to be part of that as well. Mm. So you inspire me and thank you for that. And, uh, and thank you for what you're doing. I think it's amazing. I do want to finish off with a fun question. So, okay. you're, so you're hosting a private dinner party. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Other than the wine, I think we know what wine's going to be on the table. Absolutely. But, but who's on the celebrity guest list? Look, Nick, that's a tough question. I, I could come up with a list as long as my arm. But if I had to pick my best uh, you know, two or three, I think Philip Lowe. Philip Lowe. There's, there's a lot of intellect there and as many as much as you know people you know criticize him for for some of the things he said over the course of, of his tenure he's done an amazing job at the RBA and I think it'd be great just to have a candid conversation with him as well look the other two actually two from both sides of politics in public life and and that would be and they're two gentlemen that have had long tenures in politics long tenures as prime ministers and i believe have made some significant contributions to this country and they are standouts let's let's face it and that's bob hawke and john howard number one it creates some amazing diverse conversation because they're on either side of politics but i think what those two gentlemen endured and and what they produced and what they contributed to this country is invaluable and and will go down in history as them both being two of the most renowned politicians we've ever had and yeah, no, i'm a massive john howard fan too and i think there's a common theme between those those individuals that you've mentioned and absolutely that is, that is their strength of character absolutely under pressure so absolutely. Uh, 
um, clearly they've been a, a role model for you by the sounds of things because you've... from a business point of view yes yeah. you know that, that and, and again that's that's my interest I, I just love business so yeah. I, I love you know at all levels so whether it be public private you know private equity run you know I, I, I love all business and I'd love to pick their brains Louis thanks so much cheers thanks Nick Good thanks for your time cheers Bye. thank you cheers I hope you enjoyed today's chat you can find us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to any of your podcast streamings, and we'll catch you next time on Better Ways for Living.